our trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, I welcome you to the show. We are here today to revel in wrong think, which it turns out isn't that hard to do in the time and age in which we live. Oh, just wait till you hear what I've got on tap. By the way, thanks to Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, also Jeff Staples Real Estate, and the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage for being sponsors of this program. And thank you for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. So one of the worst things that a person can have hung around their neck today, worse than an albatross, worse than a millstone, is that uh, positive test for COVID-19. Sometimes I hear, you know, public health officials lament, well, I wish more people would get tested. And, and I have to think to myself, okay, so this is a disease so serious, so deadly, you have to get tested to find out if you either have it or have had it. Hmm, very interesting. But the bottom line is, those who do get tested for it and those who are found positive, I mean, they just earned themselves the equivalent of the scarlet letter that uh, they get to carry around with them. Not only do you get... You know, panic from everybody you've been around for the last, uh, you know, few weeks. But you're going to be viewed with continued suspicion and, and tracked and monitored by the authorities. I think this is one of the reasons why people are a little bit reluctant to get out there and try to, uh, you know, make sure that, that they're, they're being tested. I mean, to, we're to the point here in my home state of Utah where public health officials are in some cases bribing people. Hey, we'll give you a $30 gift card if you come get tested for COVID. And I understand. It's, it's not all nefarious. I mean, they, they, they do want to know what's the extent to which this is spreading. But the bottom line is, think about how you would feel if, if you were notified, look, you have tested positive for COVID. Man, that phone call to the last few people you were hanging out with, probably going to be a little bit awkward. And you know that from that day forward, people are going to look at you with uh, just a little bit of suspicion. Well, we don't know. You know is it, are you in typhoid Mary mode today? Or, you know, can, can we trust being around you? Robert E. Wright, in a piece written for the American Institute for Economic Research, touches on, a, on the minority rights that are at stake here. And I think he makes a pretty good case that the people who test positive for COVID or survive having been sick with COVID, find themselves in a very precarious situation. He says, didn't we all agree that governments can't constitutionally oppress minorities or blame victims, and that private persons or organizations that do so are rightly called by the name of a stinky body part that we all possess? Yet he says, every new minority group that comes along suffers and the latest people to feel the wrath of the government and the unthinking, stinky members of society are COVID-19 survivors, individuals who tested positive and lived. With the recent spike in cases and even higher survivorship rates, their ranks swell daily, but, he says, their oppression remains palpable. While everyone has lamented the 225,000 or so deaths from with or from COVID in America so far, 
the 8 million-plus survivors reside in a sort of limbo between heaven of normalcy and the hell inhabited by the rest of us, those who've not been infected, or, uh, as he says, like himself, suspect infection, but they suspect that they've been infected, but they can't prove it because they became ill before widespread testing was available or because they remained asymptomatic or nearly so. They constitute yet a different minority. Anyway, Robert Wright says, Alarmist claims to the contrary. The vast majority of COVID-19 survivors will not contract the virus again, anytime soon, anyway, and they won't pass it on to others. They are more heroes than anything else, but the mass media treats them as pariahs, literally as most hail from our lower, surf-like castes composed of apparently inessential people doing essential tasks on behalf of their putative superiors. But he says our political caste is not done with them yet. Out of mere expedience, social distancing mandates apply to COVID-19 survivors, as well as the great masses of those as yet putatively uncleansed by a bout with the malady. The whole policy battle between the signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration and the John Snow thing aside, there is no justice in forcing innocent youths and heroic survivors of the worst pandemic in half a century to wear a mask or forego drinking, face-to-face education, live music, sports, and theater, and whatnot. In fact, he says it's clearly unconstitutional. Robert Wright says, I think the whole lockdown approach is unconstitutional, but any differences of interpretation there do not apply for those who cannot get sick or spread the dang virus. Now, he says, you might think, well, I haven't gotten the virus, so I don't care that the rights of 8 million Americans are being trampled upon. To which he responds, well, you should care. Because the precedent being set right now is one where government can force business closures and enforce sumptory consumption, including including dress laws, with no public health pretext whatsoever. They do not want to admit to this right now. But in the future, perhaps not so distant, some government official will justify an arbitrary act by pointing to the treatment of COVID-19 survivors in this pandemic. Well, we, some euphemism for stripping the civil liberties of people who posed no health risk in 2020, so why can't we do it now? There is precedent. By the way, that is something worth considering because that is something that people in authority will always fall back on. Back to the article, Robert Wright says, but don't get me wrong, I don't think oppressing COVID-19 heroes is about setting that precedent. It's merely about expediency. Allowing freedom to some while denying it to others would fracture the increasingly tentative grip our most authoritarian leaders have on power. Some citizens would respond by flaunting social distancing rules, arguing that, well, if he can go without a mask, go to a bar, etc., so can I. Others would deliberately get COVID-19 so they can regain their liberty lawfully after surviving, as almost all who are not ancient or obese do. He says, I don't see a problem with such voluntary actions. Some will lose the lottery and die, the biggest heroes of all. But clearly, the follies of March are behind us, and even though most of those hospitalized will survive, especially if not placed on the death machines, a.k.a. respirators, that doctors and politicians once claimed were desperately needed. And he says, rest assured, COVID-19 survivors do have constitutional rights, but as a small minority everywhere, they're not a voting bloc this fall. So no politician gives a dang about them. For that reason, he says, I must admit that I'm not as big a fan of James Madison's famous Federalist Number 10 as I once was. That was the one where where Jemmy argued that a bigger republic could fend off faction and tyrannical majorities more more easily than a smaller republic, rather. 
ceteris paribus, of course. Now, he says the claim appears particularly laughable today. This is what James Madison said. In the next place, says each representative will be chosen by a greater number of citizens in the large than in the small republic, it will be more difficult for unworthy candidates to practice with success the vicious arts by which elections are too often carried. And the suffrages of the people being more free will be more likely to center in men who possess the most attractive merit and the most diffusive and established characters, end quote. All right, got to admit, that didn't age particularly well. Robert Wright says if half of the mud that U.S. Senate Senate candidates David Perdue and John Ossoff have slung at each other on the public airwaves is true, Georgians ought to take both of them out back of the barn and save themselves the embarrassment of having either of those miscreants represent them in D.C. He says many other races also pit candidates of dubious merit against each other. No matter which candidate wins any given election, the American people lose because they come to be led by knaves instead of statesmen. Now, he says Madison was right that a rage for paper money, for an abolition of debts, for an equal division of property, or for any other improper or wicked project will be less apt to pervade the whole body of the Union than a particular member of it. But Robert Wright asks, what happens when an improper and wicked project does consume large parts of the country? Many of the checks that Madison and other framers built into the Constitution have become frail, if not worthless. He says, as the power of politicians has waxed, the power to restrain them has also waned. The two lines crossed in 2020 in a rapid disintegration of some important remaining checks appears imminent. With ballots no longer secret, and hence again inalienable in many states, the Electoral College under siege and the independence of the Supreme Court threatened, minorities tremble with trepidation. Barring a disunion or a return to states' rights, he says the only real question now is who shall be the next minority, besides our heroic COVID-19 survivors, that is. I like it. I think that's a a well-thought-out question, and I think it's something we ought to be asking ourselves. And by the way, you know, I don't uh, don't fault those who resist going and getting tested, even if they feel like, well, I may have had some of the symptoms. Sometimes you just don't want to know because there might be some added baggage that comes along with that diagnosis. And by the way, I say this as someone who went and got tested some weeks ago. What do we do? How about we try reigning in government? We'll deal with the other stuff along the way. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out to Jeff Staples Real Estate. Jeff has been one of our stalwart sponsors this month, and I do appreciate that. If you are listening to me anywhere within the state of Utah, I will let you know that Jeff is a part of ERA Brokers Consolidated. And I would encourage you, if you are looking to sell your home for more or purchase your home for less, Jeff's the guy you need to talk to. You can go to jeffstaplesrealtor.com. It's jeffstaplesrealtor.com. Or if you uh, if you want to take the uh, roundabout way, just log on to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And there at the bottom of the page, you'll find a direct link to my sponsors, each and every one of them, so you can visit them. So let me ask this question. How's this for a timely one? Who deserves your trust in the COVID debate? 
the more I look at, uh, you know, the, even the political contest that will be decided a week from today, the more I recognize that, you know, the, the COVID debate, the lockdown versus don't lock it down, I think is becoming, that's, that's the defining divide right now in American society. Does that sound too dramatic? I hope it doesn't, but I really believe that's, that's the case. The confrontations that I see, and it's not just in American society. This is, this is pretty much everywhere in the first world right now. You know, people getting in fistfights and, and beating each other up, calling the authorities. I mean, let's just put it this way. People become absolutely willing to use violence against each other based on whether or not he or she was wearing a mask or disrespected me by standing closer than six feet away. What a crazy time. Stacy Rudin writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, tackles the question, who deserves your trust in the COVID debate? By the way, she draws a parallel here that's going to make some people really angry, but I think she's dead on when she compares the non-lockdowners to abolitionists from just a few generations back. I'll give you time to grab your blood pressure medication. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. She says, Stoic philosopher Epictetus believed that honorable character and a life of wisdom begin with a clear understanding of one basic principle. Some things are within our control, and some things are not. Seems pretty self-evident, wouldn't you say? She says, how we are perceived by others, our popularity, is ultimately outside of our control. So we should focus on character, not reputation, because trying to control or change what we can't only results in torment. And she then points out that the year 2020 has revealed this to be true. Many Americans, especially affluent types, prioritize reputation over character, and it has indeed resulted in torment. In the COVID debate, there is mainstream, there is a mainstream popular narrative and a competing unpopular narrative, a fringe. The former exploits the common mediocre desire to be popular. Joining the movement is easy. It results in backpats, validation, requires no uncomfortable confrontations, This narrative states that it's impossible for humanity to survive the COVID-19 pandemic without a vaccine, lockdowns, and masks, some combination of which will be required in the indefinite future or into the indefinite future. The narrative supports blaming others for infecting you with diseases rather than encouraging personal responsibility for immune and general health. She says proponents of the competing narrative, on the other hand, must stand up to massive social forces simply to make their arguments, which are not radical. They support a return to classic pandemic management tools, the same ones used by Sweden and other states and countries which did not lock down for COVID-19, which resulted in average mortality for 2020. They do not believe this pandemic warrants a complete overhaul of the economic, social, and educational systems. They believe that every human being should be empowered with truthful information about risk and how to best care for personal health and to make his or her own choices. She says, faced with these competing narratives, we must consider motives and costs. The force of social pressure to conform with the mainstream narrative is large, so we know from the outset that the people willing to argue against it are either insane or extremely driven, courageous, and strong. She says it's easy to eliminate the possibility that that they're crazy. Many of them, such as Elon Musk and the scientists who drafted the Great Barrington Declaration, are giants in their fields. They risk everything, weathering exhausting personal attacks from all sides in order to battle the crowd. Who are these people? What do they gain by doing what they do? Princeton professor Robert P. George, a specialist in moral and political philosophy and the theory of conscience, 
uses the example of slavery to demonstrate that every serious moral dilemma reveals two categories of people. The majority who go along with the popular zeitgeist no matter how atrocious it is, and the minority who risk their very existence to fight it. I think I've shared this with you before on my show. He says, sometimes I ask my students what their position on slavery would have been had they been white and living in the South before abolition. Guess what? They all would have been abolitionists. They all would have bravely spoken out against slavery and worked tirelessly against it. But he says, of course, this is nonsense. Only the tiniest fraction of them, or any of us, would have spoken up against slavery or lifted a finger to free the slaves. Most of them and us would have gone along. Many would have supported the slave system and happily benefited from it. So he says, I respond by saying, I will credit their claims if they can show evidence of the following. That in leading their lives today, they have stood up for the rights of unpopular victims of injustice whose very humanity is denied. And where they would have done so knowing, one, that it would make them unpopular with their peers, two, that they would be loathed and ridiculed by powerful, influential individuals and institutions in our society, three, that they would be abandoned by many of their friends, four, that they would be called nasty names, and five, that they would risk being denied valuable professional opportunities as a result of their moral witness. In short, he says, my challenge is to show where they have at risk to themselves and their futures stood up for a cause that is unpopular in elite sectors of our culture today. End quote. Now, Stacy Rudin says Epictetus would recognize these people, those willing to pursue unpopular causes, as people of character, mature people who create their own merit by forgetting what other people think of them. Never depend on the admiration of others, Epictetus said. There is no strength in it. It is a fact of life that other people, even people who love you, will not necessarily agree with your ideas, understand you, or share your enthusiasms. Grow up. Who cares what other people think of you? End quote. She says, well, this path leads to wisdom and self-respect. Epictetus recognizes it. It also carries a tremendous social cost, which is why only a minority choose it. You may be ridiculed and end up with ev- with the worst of everything in all parts of your public life, including your career, your social standing, and your legal position in the courts. This is what happened to the abolitionists for decades. And it's happening to COVID dissenters now. Dr. Scott Atlas was smeared by 100 of his colleagues at Stanford, who then refused to debate the substance of their claims against him. One Google search will reveal dozens of smears against the Great Barrington Declaration and its authors. So she asks, what do these anti-lockdowners gain by, de- by presenting their case to the public? Nothing material, a concept which is difficult for pro-lockdowners to understand. What they gain is security in the knowledge that they fought for truth, justice, and what is right, even to the point of risking everything. This is a privilege. Anti-lockdowners get to stand up for the least powerful in our society, for those who have no voice, for the people who are desperate for their industries to survive, for the small business owners who make just enough to feed their children, for the essential workers who stand in the supermarket checkout day in and day out while their children stay home playing video games in place of school, for the kids in developing countries who walk for miles through fields just for a Wi-Fi signal, for the frightened elderly people who haven't hugged a family member in eight months for the hospital patients who will die alone and afraid, for the religious congregations prevented from doing outreach, 
for the families foregoing holidays, birthdays, and travel, for the socially isolated, for the babies who are growing up without seeing smiles, for the special needs kids deprived of their therapies, for the women and children locked home with abusers, for the new patrons of the food bank, for the formerly proud career men, newly sunk to the unemployment line, for those driven to drinks or to drugs, for those who re- whose rehab was suspended. There's more. We'll come back to it in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you what I consider one of the more powerful uh, articles that I've come across this week. It's from Stacy Rudin. Who deserves your trust in the COVID debate? The lockdowners or the anti-lockdowners? And as we uh, went to break, she was describing what it is that the anti-lockdowners are standing up for. What do they gain? And really, they they risk a lot. And I know this may sound self-serving. I, I count myself as an anti-lockdowner, but I look, I'll defer whatever whatever praise she is putting on the anti-lockdowners and say, I think she's right here. I still feel like my life has been fairly comfortable. I haven't suffered a great deal, not as much as some. But when she talks about the people who are standing up, they are standing up not just for themselves, they're standing up for the least powerful in society. They're standing up for the people who are considering suicide, for those whose vaccinations and medical treatments have been delayed or canceled, for those wondering if life will ever be, be worth living again, for those who feel like there's nothing left to rely on now that lives, livelihoods, and educations can be decimated at government whim. Here's how she puts it. She says, anti-lockdowners believe that all of these people, every single one, deserves a voice, a unique vote as to the philosophy of his or her life, and that no one else, even someone vastly more powerful, has the right to override it. By supporting this system of equality and fairness, anti-lockdowners seek to live in a world built on those principles, which protects themselves, their families, and the world of human beings as a whole, prioritizing human beings over corporate and government interests. Now, she also asks, what do the lockdowners gain? And to answer this question, she says we need only consider who the acceptance of their program benefits. Tech interests, billionaires, pharmaceutical companies, certain political parties, the 1%, the same people who can easily work from home, who are not harmed by lockdowns, who consider themselves so smart that their decision as to what should be scary must hold for every single person on the planet. No votes are needed because their judgment is so good. Whatever businesses and educational systems and social structures need to die must die because they say so. All they need to do is push this to push this system is gain the cooperation of the media, which can be done with dollars alone. Now, if that seems harsh, I'll agree. That is harsh, but I think it's also correct. And so Stacy Rudin says, ask yourself, who deserves your trust? She says, I would argue that anti-lockdowners are today's abolitionists, people willing to take up an unpopular cause at incredible risk. 
Lockdowners may currently be popular, she says, but they are on the wrong side of history. Now, I got to tell you, that, uh, that struck a nerve with me. But then again, I've, you know, I've had a, a long time of, of practicing for the day when, when standing for truth would be hard. And I'm not trying to pretend that I've got this down like it's so easy and so good, you know, and, and nothing phases me. It's painful sometimes. It sucks when people question your motives and, and, you know, think, well, you're just doing this for attention. But there have been so many great people, so many great souls ahead of us who have done this. I want to be worthy to stand in their company one day. And I definitely, like Stacy Rudin points out, I want to be able to tell my children and their children, I did my part. Imperfect as it may have been, awkward and, and clumsy as it may have been, I did my part because I knew deep down that it mattered. And by the way, I'm not trying to guilt you. So if you're feeling guilt, please understand that's, you know, that's not me trying to put that on you and saying you should be doing exactly the same. I'm simply explaining this is why Stacy Rudin's message resonates with me. And I think it's a choice that every one of us gets to make. And I would ask you, give it some serious consideration. Don't just, you know, don't treat it lightly or worse yet, don't try to hide from it. In fact, I want to shift gears now and share with you an article from Gary Barnett. This was published this morning on lewrockwell.com. Here's the title. Freedom is strength. Obedience is weakness. And indifference is cowardice. He starts with a quote. From, a, from an essay that every person really needs to read, even though this was written back in 1552 by a French uh, student, 18 years old, by the name of Etienne de la Boite. The quote says, Poor, wretched, and stupid peoples, nations, determined on your own misfortune and blind to your own good. You let yourselves be deprived before your own eyes of the best part of your revenues. Your fields are plundered, your homes robbed, your family heirlooms taken away. You live in such a way that you cannot claim a single thing as your own, and it would seem that you consider yourselves lucky to be loaned your property, your families, and your very lives. This is from The Politics of Obedience, The Discourse of Voluntary Servitude. And Gary Barnett says, What has befallen humanity? Why are we facing an end to freedom, beauty, and happiness? Why are so many fooled over and over again? Why has stupidity replaced sanity and logic? Why are the masses bound to darkness? instead of accepting reality and truth? Why do the many, without resisting, allow themselves to be controlled by the few? Even the weakest animal in the wild would muster a defense in order to protect life and home. So why is the human animal cowering in fear while their lives and families are being destroyed? Cowardice has replaced strength. Ignorance has replaced intellect. Blind obedience has replaced self-responsibility. And what remains is a society consumed by indifference. And when this is the prevailing state of mind, he says, servitude is the result. There was no virus pandemic due to what is referred to as COVID-19, and there never was a virus pandemic. Now, he says this virus plot is simply being used as a method to instill fear in enough people so that mass compliance can be achieved. Now, you may agree or disagree. Personally, I think, no, there's, there's a legit virus out there. But I do agree with him that this is proving to be a method 
to get people in fear so that the elite can gain their compliance. And he says, once that compliance is at a a preferred level acceptable to the claimed ruling elite, the plan for future world governments can go forward without much resistance. That plan is openly being referred to as the Great Reset. And he says, at this time, we're entering into what could be the final stage of this long-planned coup, and that will be the most dangerous and critical time for this country and the world. Regardless of political rhetoric, the head of the snake is the United States. Even with the destruction of this economy as we know it, the most powerful in the U.S. will still be at the top of a technocratic pyramid of power. Globalization is certainly the goal, but there will be a ruling hierarchy made up of U.S. individuals, powerful banks, corporations, and foundational entities in the most powerful positions. The upcoming election, he says, will most likely prove to be the initiation of the next and most important stage of this vast conspiracy meant only to gain total control of all economic, monetary, and social constructs. This could lead to mass unrest, which in turn could lead to a much higher presence of enforcement agents, including police, reserves, and even active military. And he says the timing is also right at the beginning of flu season, and with all the false cases due to bogus PCR testing, the fake pandemic will again take center stage. Given that immune systems throughout this country have been greatly compromised and decimated over the past eight months, and just in time for flu season, there will probably be more sickness and death than normal. Once a chaotic atmosphere exists, the claims by the political class will be that we are again in a state of emergency, and if enough fear can be mustered by all this pandemonium coming simultaneously, that fear will change the current antagonism toward this poisonous vaccine into not only more acceptance by a higher percentage of the population, but a clamoring for it to be made available at the earliest time possible. While this scenario may seem somewhat complicated and unlikely to occur, he says this is not the case due to the fact that everything is set to fall in place in, a, in, a, in fall into place in a systematic manner. This has been structured properly and purposely rather and planned over a long period of time, and he says there should be no surprise to see that all of these things happening at once, which will cause much confusion and anxiety, could quickly lead to a state-captured society worse than has been evident to date. And here's the kicker. He says, this is why hiding from reality, hoping things will turn out for the best, and expecting things to get back to normal without strong resistance will cause the end of liberty. Weakness and apathetic attitudes are what the powerful expect and what they desire. If the people continue to acquiesce to all state mandates, refusing to say no to these tyrannical measures and voluntarily shut down their lives and their livelihoods for what will falsely be referred to as the greater good, Gary Barnett says we will all be doomed. So what is this all leading up to? There's more to this article. I hope you will check it out for yourself in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. It means that we have a decision to make. And trust me, there's, there's no one who wishes that they could just walk away from this find a quiet place in the hills and just let it all collapse into dust without having a front row seat to it. But I don't believe God placed me here or you at this point in time to turn our backs when our influence is desperately needed. I think we're a part of this fight and I think we ought to rise to it and do our part. What do you think? This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I really strongly encourage you read Gary Barnett's article. I, some people are going to disagree. They're going to say, wait, he sounds like he's anti-vaccine. Oh, yeah, he's, he's definitely anti-vaccine. But the gist of what he's talking about, freedom is strength, obedience is weakness, and indifference is cowardice. Look, the thing you need to take away is you and I do have a say. I don't care how powerless you feel. You have the ability to withhold your consent. That's why he quoted Etienne Delaboiti at the beginning of his piece from the Discourse on Voluntary Servitude. One final quote here. Resolve to serve no more, and you are at once freed. Now, what that means is when someone demands your compliance, you can say no. I know. Well, I'm not going to do that to a cop alongside the road. I wouldn't advise you to do that either because uh, many of them are trained to escalate and, you know, bring violence into the situation to force you to do what, uh, what they need you to do. But stop supporting those who are trying to put you into figurative chains. The only way that people are going to find the courage to do this is to really understand what it is that they're standing for. And the only way that I know to do that is to, to dig into what are the principles and the practices of liberty. Really, what does it mean? What does it mean to have natural rights? What does it mean to have limited government? Why does the individual and the rights of the individual deserve to be protected against the will of the collective? Because the collective will gladly run right over the top of the individual every single time. All right. Let me kick that soapbox to the curb. Let's, uh, let's touch on what I think may be the uh, touchiest, most painful subject that any of us will confront in our lives. That is the subject of suicide. Because suicide has uh, gone up quite a bit this year, I don't know what the, the rates are. I've heard words like precipitously. You know, I, I don't know. I know that uh, the, the, the risk is much higher. I know more people have, have posted in social media that they personally have been affected by the suicide of family members, friends, loved ones, co-workers. It's a problem. Alex Knight, writing for everythingvoluntary.com, explores this, and, and I don't mean in the sense of, you know, hey, you know, is assisted suicide the way to go? But uh, listen to what he has to say and understand this is going to make some people uncomfortable. But I think because of how it is front and center right now in our national consciousness, this is a subject that we should be willing to confront. He says a fundamental libertarian axiom, of course, is exclusive self-ownership, doing with one's own body, mind, and life without impinging upon the self-ownership of others as one desires. In fact, he says it might actually be considered the very touchstone of libertarianism itself. So he says it should come as no surprise that statists of all varieties have used suicide prevention as a rubric under which to justify everything from continuing the war on drugs to invasions of privacy to stricter gun regulation. Yet Alex Knight says their interventionism has been inconsistent and arbitrary, as statism so often is. The government courts thus far, according to Cornell Law School, have been cagey on the topic, 
While it would seem a fair amount of latitude has been extended to medical students who refuse ostensibly life-saving drugs, or medical patients, rather, who refuse life-saving drugs, assisted suicide is vigorously championed by the late Dr. Jack Kevorkian has generally been considered prohibitum, as has been the case with other more traditional forms of individuals choosing to end their own lives. Indeed, to quote Cornell, there has been little litigation of constitutional issues surrounding suicide generally, although Supreme Court dicta seems to favor the notion that the state has a constitutionally defensible interest in preserving the lives of healthy citizens. Further, this sentiment seems to have been bolstered by the U.S. Supreme Court in Cruzen v. Director, Missouri Department of Health, back in 1990, where the court held, we do not think that a state is required to remain neutral in the face of an informed and voluntary decision by a physically able adult to starve to death. Alex Knight says, are there any ulterior motives present in such inconsistencies? Or are they merely the typical trappings of a customarily wanton bureaucracy fraught with self-contradiction throughout? He says, my guess is the latter not only because it's difficult to discern any significant gain governments might obtain thereby, other than perhaps that living people tend to pay more taxes than dead ones, but also simply because Occam's razor. There's always the danger of ascribing to bureaucrats more intellect than is due them. However that, as stated, the powers that should not be continue to make shameless use of suicide prevention to limit the freedoms that we are all allowed by them to enjoy and seem to garner much more popular support in turn for their position. Now, just so people won't misunderstand him, he says, let me be clear. I consider suicide a tremendous tragedy. He said it has touched his life and his family very deeply and personally. It seems to him that there are a thousand and one options in most cases before one should undertake such a dramatic, final, and irreversible course of action. That said, in the final analysis, the decision to live or not to live is and should be 100% the exclusive choice of the owner of that life, and never some outside party, ever. We may offer our advice, our genuine compassion, our emotional solace to those who grieve and consider suicide, but he says it ultimately remains their choice, not ours, and certainly not government's. No matter how much we may be crushed by the suicide of a loved one, a friend, or simply a good person we know in passing, No one reserves the legitimate right to forcibly prevent another's decision to end their own life. For if they do not possess the exclusive license to do as they wish with their own existence, then who does, he asks, and how so? Now, I'll grant you, there are some pretty deep ethical considerations that come into play here. But the basic philosophy of, that is not my call to make, I'm not the one who should be uh, forcibly preventing you from ending your own life. I tend to agree with that. You know, I'm, I'm not a supporter of Dr. Kevorkian. <laughs> I, I, I don't think the uh, so-called assisted suicides or death with dignity, as some call it, uh, I don't think that that's a great way to go either. Years ago, I had the opportunity to interview a hospice nurse And uh, I'm trying to remember, I can't remember the name of his book. I can't remember his name. I just remember I was tremendously touched by his message of what it meant to, to work with people on a daily basis, preparing them for their transition out of this life. And I remember him telling me the story of one of his cancer patients 
Um, I think the guy's name was Bill. And Bill was dying of cancer. He was dying in tremendous pain. Bill had a uh, bottle of pain pills that he kept with him with the understanding that if things got to be more than he could bear, he could simply take a few too many and end his life through an overdose. And what Bill did was he kept that bottle of pain pills tied into a sock, which he kept there with him in his uh, hospital bed. So it wasn't like, you know, the bottle's right there, you know, just begging to be opened. You know, it would take a conscious effort and a decision to unknot the sock take out the bottle, and take the overdose of pain medication. That was Bill's way of hanging on to that autonomy and the knowledge that if I choose to, I could go ahead and essentially pull the plug on myself if I choose to. But he talked about how proud he was to see Bill fight that fight through to the very end. He never untied the sock. He died, you know, a natural death. And every time he would come into Bill's room and ask him, how are you doing? Bill would hold up that sock with the pill bottle in it and say, I'm hanging in there. Now, I can't make that kind of a decision for you. And I wouldn't want you to make that kind of decision for me. Personally, I believe our lives are a gift from God. Not the kind of gift that I would want to throw back in God's face. But the last entity that I would want exerting its influence or its, uh, you know, its will into that situation would be government. Because force is the only thing that government knows to, to get its way. So for those who have been touched this year by suicide, my heart goes out to you. I know it leaves, um, you know, innumerable unanswered questions and pain that, that endures, you know, for everybody. At the same time, I think this is an article that uh, Alex Knight uh, does, I think, justice to examining the, su- the subject and at least asking some of the kind of questions that could get us thinking productively. Check it out. It's in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show.